goodness and for your faithfulness and uh, once again for your word. We ask that you take this word and uh, use it to change us. Your, says, your word says it's living and active and it does amazing things in our lives. So God, we pray that it would do that this morning, that your words, my words would be the, your words that you have given me throughout this week. So God, that we can be uh, better followers of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, speaking of my, my, that was my wife. My wife actually, she used to work in, uh, my, actually, my wife actually worked retail uh, for, for a little while. She works at, she worked at, we're, we're going out here again. Um, well, she worked at a, whoa, she worked at a retail store where what, what the deal does, they really actually required their people to uh, be super friendly and to be very, very, very welcoming do we want to get that worked out before I go any further? Am I going in and out? And in? Uh, I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. Um, but she worked at a store where they were required to be super friendly and very nice. And actually, there was one employee there that was amazing at it. He, people would come in, and he would just make them feel like, oh, you are at are going to want to buy stuff. This is just the best place, and you're the best person, and all that stuff. Problem was, the only thing was that once these customers would leave the store, he would really rip them apart. I mean, he would just trash talk them about what they were wearing, about how their response to his, you know, talking to them, the fact that maybe they didn't buy anything. Basically, they were just trying to find any reason, he was finding any reason possible to kind of criticize those people. So and I really think that this is a good picture of how many times some, some of us approach kingdom living, or as we've been talking about, the way that God is completely reigning and ruling in our hearts. You know, on the outside, we can look like we're being faithful and we're, we're faithful, enthusiastic followers of Jesus, but on the inside, our, our heart, our mind, or our attitude is really far from that reality. Last week, we started looking at actually the kingdom values. We're going through the book of Matthew, and we started looking in the Beatitudes last week. And we were looking at really the kingdom, kingdom uh, priorities and things that are important in the kingdom, the values in the kingdom, which when we, are, when we fully embrace those values we looked at last week, that's when we are truly blessed. And that's when the kingdom, remember we talked about how the kingdom is advanced when we embrace those values. Now this week, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to begin to teach his disciples and us by looking at this about how that is to practically play out in our lives. How do values, how does embracing the values of kingdom living actually play out in our lives? And he's really, what he's going to do, he's going to do it in a way that I really believe nobody saw coming. Nobody would have guessed that he was going to do it this way. Because what he's going to be doing is he's going to be using something that they're already very familiar with. And that's called the law. He's going to use the law, which the, and what it was, the law was something that was given by God, God's divine instructions to Israel on how, to, how they were to live in a covenant relationship with him. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go, but let's, let's just jump right in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, the words will be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're just going to do the first verse first. It says, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Now, as we talk about the law, the law, what the law was, it was 613 commands, including the Ten Commandments for Israel. What they were is they were really a standard for a holy lifestyle that God was really requiring his people to live, to live as set-apart people because he knew they were going to be living amongst people that didn't have the same values they had. So he had this law for them. And really what the law did, and it's really important to understand this, what the law did back then, it worked kind of like a guide. It was kind of like a tutor that helped people to see when they were veering off from living as God desired them to live. It kept them from heading into a rebellious lifestyle. That's why you're going to see in a minute how the words are how it's described. It was also meant to point people to a time when everything in it would actually be fulfilled in the life and in the atoning work of Jesus, the Messiah. Look at what Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 say about the law. It says, the law, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That word guardian is talking about like someone that comes alongside and helps, you know how someone has a legal guardian, helps come alongside them. One of the commentators that I read this week, he wrote this. The law guides us to a true understanding of ourselves so that we might recognize the depth of our sin and the love that God offers to sinners in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The holy heaviness of the law ought to make us wholly humble before God. So in the light of this, now what Jesus does I've just given you a picture. This is something that they knew. But what he does now is he says something completely audacious. He just goes and says something that just blows their mind here in verse 17. Because he didn't understand what he was saying here is that everything here is going to be fulfilled in me. What he was going to say here is I probably blew everybody away, especially, though, if any of the legal of the... Um, the religious leaders were kind of lingering in the crowd. This would have really blown them away. When he says he came to fulfill the law or the prophets, he's saying that everything that he did, his life, his teaching, everything that he is going to do and, and, and the future, doing now and in the future fulfills the entire Old Testament. It fulfills the Jewish law. It fulfills the Torah. It fulfills the writings of the prophet. It fulfills everything in Psalms. It, everything in the Old Testament points to him. You see, in doing this, we could, what he's doing here is, is saying we could never do what we could never do. Jesus is doing what we could never do, and that's fulfill the laws and the prophets. And he did this by his perfect, sinless, obedient life to the Father. And he fulfilled, fulfilled precisely everything that was written about his birth, about his ministry, and about his sacrificial death. Everything in the Old Testament is a picture of the life and work of Jesus and how he has come to fulfill all of that or live out those pictures. Now, just to help you with what, what's he talking about here, let me give you a little visual bit. It's like when you prepare for a vacation. My wife and I are going to be going on vacation for 10 days in April. 
We're already been doing a lot of looking and looking at pictures on the internet. She's even checking out books, travel books at the library. So when you pray for, when you get ready for a vacation, you collect as much information as you can, right, about what you want to do, about you, what you want to see, most importantly, what you want to eat, right? Some of you already had it, exactly. You kind of get, you kind of get prepared for that so that you can really have the best picture in your mind of what that vacation is going to be like. But it's not until you get there that 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 picture in your mind is fulfilled. When you get there, you're now seeing the things that you planned on seeing. Oh, wow, that looked, that's what it really looks like. You're doing stuff that's like, oh, that's what it was going to be like. You start eating food and that's there and you go, oh, oh, okay, I get it. That's what this is going to be like. The things that you pictured and planned on are now fulfilled in your experience of being there. That's what Jesus is talking about him, fulfilling the law. The point is that Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law, everything that they called for, which was nothing short of perfection, something that we could never, ever accomplish. Yet something was happening to his readers, his teachings and his actions apparently got them thinking that Jesus was not totally upholding the law and the teachings of the prophets. You understand, this was a society that lived by these things. So he was saying things that wasn't making sense. To many, he seemed like he was teaching things that didn't jive with the Old Testament at all. He was teaching things like we looked at last week, that blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, and those that mourn. They're like, what? And he's saying, also talking about the, how he is going to fulfill the Old Testament. See, they're starting to think, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about? But not only does Jesus say that, he didn't just, he didn't just come to get rid of the law. He didn't come to change anything. But to fulfill it, he goes on to affirm the value of the law. He says, I'm not here to, oh it. I'm not here to change it in any way, but I'm here to show you how important it is. I'm going to, basically, he's going to affirm to them how important the Testament law is. And you're going to think, okay, Rob, what does this have to do? You're going to see in a few minutes how this has a lot to do with how you and I live our lives today. He's saying that everything in it, every little dot, every little everything in it is super important. And I'm not here to tell you, because you have you ever heard that in your life before? If you've been a believer, we don't live by the Old Testament anymore. That's not true. That's not true at all. No, there's certain things. Jesus has come, but the Old Testament is still relevant for us today. Let's look at what Jesus even says here. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These verses tell us here that we are to take every bit of the law just as serious as Jesus did. Take it just as serious as he did. And look what he even says here. It seems that our standing in heaven actually depends on that. 
That's huge. The reality is, you guys, is we can't look at the Old Testament and think that it has little or no relevance or bearing on our faith or our life today. You see, the New Testament is to be understood in the light of the Old Testament and vice versa. It's important. I believe that really one of the main reasons that so many of us Christians find don't read the Old Testament or think that most of it is boring or I can't understand it, that all this stuff, it's because we truly don't understand who Jesus is and why he came. Because if we did, the Old Testament would make a whole lot more sense. You see, Jesus is at the center of the Bible's message. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And he even proves this. Remember that story uh, towards the end of Jesus' life? Well, after he had come back, the story of the two guys, two of Jesus' disciples. Remember, they were walking along the road to Emmaus. Okay, they're walking along this road to Emmaus. They're talking about, oh my gosh, what just happened? I can't believe what just happened. And they're talking about it. All of a sudden, Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize him. They're just walking along thinking, oh, hey, stranger, how you doing? And they're just walking along with him, and they're telling him about all the things that happened. Oh, you can't believe this guy. What? He shouldn't have been killed, and you know, now he's gone. We don't know what's going on. But then Jesus begins to talk to them. So Jesus starts to explain to them these things that just happened, and they're, what? But listen to what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 24, he says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he inter- interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. My friends, the Bible is all about Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. Everything in it comes together to point to him. When we read about Moses as the mediator, remember he was the mediator between man and God? Jesus is now our ultimate mediator between us and God. When we read about Joshua, the deliverer that led the people into the promised land, Jesus is our ultimate deliverer who will one day bring us home into land. When we read about animal sacrifices, I think that's where some of us just go, okay, I'm out. I don't get this. Genealogies and animal sacrifices. That's where you go, this can't be relevant at all. But animal animal sacrifices, they talk about how they temporarily took away and took sins away and took care of people's sins. And Jesus, but Jesus now, what? He's once and for all our sacrifice for our sin. Here's an exercise. I want to encourage you to do this or challenge you to do this. Whenever you read the Old Testament, Look for Jesus in every story. Okay, look for him in every story, whether it's an example of what points to him or an example of how much we need him. I mean, you start looking at some of the things in the Old Testament, and you go, these kings of, of Israel, they just totally were blowing it. That's a great example of how that's not what the people, they demanded a king. That's not what they needed. They needed a savior. He wasn't, they aren't enough. The whole Old Testament, it points and comes together to point to Jesus. So I want to encourage you to do that. Think of him. Read the Old Testament. When you read that thing, read it with Jesus in mind, okay? Because the reality is that more than looking for encouragement and personal affirmation in the Bible, 
We need to be looking for Jesus in the Bible because he is the true source of encouragement and affirmation. I times I open my Bible and say, God, give me something good here. I need some encouragement. And the, way, the only way that's really gonna happen is God, show me Jesus. Holy Spirit, show me Jesus because he fulfilled all the things in the law, all the things that we were to do to measure up, all the things that we were to do to enjoy life is in him. So if I see him, I'll understand fulfillment. I need Jesus more than I need to be happy. I need Jesus more than I need to have my needs met. I need Jesus more than I need to be affirmed by people because he's the ultimate affirmation. Have I pounded on the Old Testament enough here? <laughs> it's, it's so important. That's what, because, and see, this is what Jesus is saying. No, I'm not changing anything. I'm telling you how important it is and how I, it all pointed to me. All right, now Jesus actually drops a bomb on him, okay? He drops a bomb on him in verse 20. Look at that with me. Here's what he says. He says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure people start going, ooh. They're looking around, is there a scribe or a Pharisee? I mean, ooh, gosh. He says, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving his followers, remember, he's speaking mainly to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, but the crowds are all around, eavesdropping. Okay, they're all hearing this. What he's doing here, he's giving his followers a radically new understanding of what kingdom living was all about, what the reign and the rule of God in our life is supposed to look like. We see here that Jesus demands a higher standard of obedience to the law from his followers than that of the religious leaders. He demands a higher standard standard of obedience. See, the scribes, these, were guys, these guys were authorities on the teachings of the law. I mean, these guys gave their whole lives to being able to study and illustrate the law. That was their life. Now, the Pharisees, this, they were, these were this sect, this strict sect of men who were all about the meticulous practice of the law. They were so meticulous about it, they, they formed laws and codes to make sure that people obeyed the laws and the codes. They just added stuff and added stuff and added stuff and added stuff like crazy. To bear, it just became absolutely impossible. The problem was that they viewed their righteous standing before God based on, entirely on, external actions and religious formalities. I'm doing the right thing. This is what it says. I'm going to do it. They're just being, they're doing a great job on the outside. Listen to how what Jesus describes. Maybe you've heard this before. Listen to how Jesus describes the religious leaders, the ones that were supposed to be pointing people towards God, instructing them in the law. Look what he says about them in Matthew later on that we'll be looking at. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These guys were what we would call in today's vernacular, posers. Okay? 
These guys were full-on posers. They looked great on the outside. You could not find fault in them at all for actually doing what the law said to do on the outside. But we see Jesus was concerned with so much more than that. Yet, interesting enough, though, the eyes, in the eyes of the people, these guys were respected. They were revered as defenders of the law. So this must have just been like, what? So you can imagine the shock and awe that happened, that everyone around them hearing that Jesus actually criticizing these guys for their disobedience to the law. They're thinking, what is he talking about? I watched this guy. He does it all perfectly. He crosses every T, dots every I. I think we get people like that. We look at them, we go, man, they got it together. But Jesus has a message. It's a very strong message for us here. Because if the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees needed to be exceeded in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, how in the world were they supposed to measure up? How in the world could that possibly happen? Well, if by righteousness, Jesus meant purely measuring up by obedience to rules and regulations, there's nobody could. There's no way. These guys were the pros. These guys were first-round draft picks, okay? Top, top, they were, these were the Steph Currys. These were, I mean, these were the amazing, the, the, all that, they were the best. They were the best of the best. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of righteousness altogether, completely different. Remember, the kingdom Jesus has been talking about isn't a place. Remember, it's allowing God to fully rule and fully reign in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus is saying that those that truly belong to the kingdom of heaven move beyond simply obeying and observing rules in order to please God to being transformed, be fully transformed in the way they think and the way that they act. That's different, right? Rule keeping is not what kingdom living is about. It's just not. It's about a completely transformed heart. And this is something not in my notes here, but I'm going to say, when you're young, when you're young, <laughs> you learn something that you take into adulthood that we most of us regret. You learn how to wear a mask. You learn it very young. I, learn, I know how I need to act with this group. I know how I need to be at home. Don't put your heads down. I know, <laughs> I know how I need to act. I know school. I know how I need to act with my boss. I know how to act with this set of friends, this set of friends, and this set of friends. And what happens? We take that mindset into our adult life, and we become posers. Possibly look proud that we're in, so that we will look. Good. And if Jesus were standing next to us, he would say, whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. But it's something we early. Our sin nature absolutely feeds on that. Okay, what we're going to see here is that Jesus, te Jesus teaches us that truly keeping the law, our kingdom living, is not about keeping the letter of the law. It's much more than that. And here's the cool thing about it. Keeping the law is about one word, love. 
Keeping the law of God is about love. Remember what Jesus says? He says this in Matthew chapter 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, here we go, depend all the law and the prophets. Boom. It's about love. Remember Romans chapter Paul, he even says, he says, one, oh no except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Other commandment summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Here we go. Therefore, Love is the fulfilling of the law. You see that? They're taking it all back to the Old Testament once again because it all points to Jesus. That is kingdom living. Loving God and loving others is kingdom living. Now, as we will see, Jesus is going to use six contrasting interpretations of commands in the law to illustrate this, to illustrate his demand for a higher standard of obedience in the law than the religious leaders, or what kingdom living truly looks like, okay? We're going to look at the first one today, and then we're going to look at the next five next week, okay? So five sermons packed into one next week. We'll get out at 3.30. No, I'm kidding. But let's look at that first one. Let's look at the first one Jesus talks about, about kingdom living. Here's what it's supposed to look like, okay? When you grasp living out the law, not just by actions, but in your transformed heart, here's what it looks like. I hope you're ready for this, because I can guarantee you this is going to hit every one of us between the eyes. I know it does me. Here's what he says, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what Jesus is doing here, he's taking the sixth commandment to not commit murder, really the intentional, unlawful taking of a life, what we would call homicide today. And by saying, listen, you have heard it said, what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out the standard that the religious leaders have said. They said, listen, it's just don't murder. But if you murder, you're judged, you're judged by the law, okay? The law will judge you. Yet you see what Jesus does? He demands even a higher standard of, of obedience to the law than them. What he's saying is, yes, you should worry about being judged in a court by committing murder. Yes, that's true. That is still true. Where back then, the penalty was death. Okay, that's what, it, it, no questions asked. It was a death penalty if you were, if you were guilty. What he's saying, though, more importantly, is that you should be concerned about God's judgment 
because he's the one that looks deep within us to our hearts and he sees our secret intentions and our motives. He knows what's going on. He's going to judge that. See, Jesus is going far beyond the outward observance to the law of the law, to the thoughts and attitudes that underlie the action, whether it's carried out or not, it doesn't matter. What's going on in their heart? See, in the civil courtroom, only the act of murder can be judged or punished. You can't punish someone for being angry. 30 days in jail because you're pissed off. That doesn't work. That's not going to happen. But what Jesus is saying here in God's courtroom, just being angry is subject to judgment. Ouch. Now, it's important to point out, not all anger is wrong, right? Not all anger is wrong. There's such a thing as righteous anger. And this is an anger that we don't want, we don't wish evil on other people. We don't want them hurt. We're not angry at them necessarily. But what we're angry at is actually a sin and evil. It's okay to be angry at that. Remember I told you guys a while ago about how to overcome certain sins in our life. You hate it. Get to a place where you just hate that sin. That's okay. That's completely okay. But Jesus is talking about unrighteous anger that stems from pride, that comes from hatred, revenge, and insecurity. That's what he's talking about. And notice how Jesus drills down here to the heart of the issue. He says that if you so much as insult somebody, you're subject to judgment. If you call them a fool or you call them a moron and you really mean it and you're subject, wow, to that fires of hell. Oh my gosh. That is strong language. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in his message translation. I always try to look at how he says things because it really brings it home. He says, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder? I'm telling you that anyone who's such as much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly calling your brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid as a sister at a sister, you're on the brink of hellfire. Simple moral fact is that words kill. Jesus is demanding a higher level, a higher standard of obedience to the law because he knows that the act of murder is more than just killing somebody. It starts in the heart. That's where it comes from. It matters. It's a matter of the heart. I mean, just think how practical this plays out on a daily basis. I think about myself, how often I find myself observing what someone else is doing or what someone else is saying and call it, you idiot. For me, it's on the road, especially. You idiot, you moron, you stupid, and really meaning it. And really, I'm calling them this stupid person. I find myself doing that all the time. It's so easy to do that. How often I've been angry with someone and just let it fester. You ever find that happening? I'm just mad at them. I'm just, and you just let it go. And at night you sit there, you have those conversations in your head with them and just, oh, you seethe and things like that. This is what he's talking about. Because that fractures love. It fractures relationships. Thankfully, though, Jesus knows our propensity towards anger. He knows it. He knows how much we struggle with it. So now he gives us two practical examples of how to deal with our anger. But he adds a really a surprising twist to it. Let's look at, let's look at the last part of this, verses 23 
to 26. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and, he, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Notice that both of these examples here, what they do is they tell us to deal with our anger and our broken relationships ASAP. Deal with them as soon as possible. Okay, the the first example that Jesus gives here kind of refers to something like when you're coming to worship, like you're coming on a Sunday morning, or anytime you want to come before the Lord and worship, and you remember, oh, you know what? So-and-so is really mad at me. I did something, and I think they're really mad at me. See, what he's saying here, he says, you're to stop, go, and do whatever needs to happen, whatever is possible to reconcile with that person, okay? In the second example, someone is taking you to court because you likely owe them something. And, and so what he's saying here is don't wait to settle. Don't wait to go to court. Don't settle. Go settle with them outside of court because you know what? You don't know what's going to happen and, the, and the, the ramifications might be disastrous if you take it all the way to court. So what Jesus is doing here, in both of these examples, he's putting his emphasis on the importance of reconciling with people as soon as possible. And I know many of us just hate that idea. We don't like what's going on. I'm just going to let it play itself out. Hopefully it'll take care of itself. Time will heal all wounds. That's about as good as sticks and stones, okay? It doesn't work that, it doesn't work that way. But did you notice, here's the twist though, did you notice in the examples who was offended or who was angry? In both of these examples, they have to do with someone having something against you. Something has happened between you and that person that needs to be made right. What this tells us is that it's not enough just to deal with our own anger but also with the angers that others have directed to us due to our doing something that offended them. If we've done something to anger or offend someone, he's just saying, take care of it now. If we have anger in our hearts towards somebody, or if we have anger, we just blurted something out, take care of it. Confess it. Talk to him about it. Ask maybe, why did I do that? This is actually this is a great principle, this whole thing of taking care, it's okay, the whole thing of taking care of things as soon as possible, really, it's, it's perfect. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He's Remember in Ephesians 4, he says this, be angry and do not what? He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And this is the best part of it all. Do not give an opportunity to the devil talked about this when I, ta- I spoke at the high school retreat, their spiritual retreat at the beginning of the school. We talked about this, how the enemy loves to get a foothold in our life. And anybody that rock climbs know how important footholds are. Leg muscles, a lot bigger and stronger than these. 
You get a good foothold. You've seen those videos of those guys. They jump around like spiders. You know, they're all over the place because they got, most of them aren't going like that. They're jumping around. Footholds are the things that hold them in that causes them to be able to move around. It's the same thing with the enemy. If he can get a foothold, and for many of us in this room, it has been anger. I confessed to you guys months ago how when my kids, I have four sons, when they were young, anger was my biggest problem. Anger. I would yell. And I've had to work with my kids and talking about that kind of stuff. And God's had to do a work in my life in that. Because it was a foothold. And I know it was a foothold because I've had my kids talk to me about it and how it's impacted their life. That's pain. That hurts. See what God's trying to keep us from? He's not trying to just slap us on the wrist. Don't be angry. It's not at all. It's about love. It's about relationships. That's what God is trying to do. That's what he's saying here. Kingdom living isn't easy, is it? It is not easy. You know what? I'm going to change my mind. It's impossible. Kingdom living is impossible. That is one of the things that the law was meant to accomplish. It shows us our need for a Savior. That not only has a Savior that not only has the power to reconcile us to God, but the Savior that can reconcile us to others as well. We desperately need that. We can't do it on our own. We can't get to God on our own, and we can't make all our relationships work out just right on our own either. We need Jesus. That's the person that the whole Bible points to. From these examples, Jesus is reinforcing his message that, that those who truly belong to the kingdom of heaven move beyond adhering to rules and the letter of the law in order to please God, to completely allowing him to transform our hearts, to change us the way we think, to change the way we act. It happened to me when I was doing that the other day, and I drove, and I went, that idiot, I went, God, I need you. <laughs> it was just showing me right there. Mighty of a Savior was huge right there. It was, in, it was in my face. That's what the law does. And that's why Paul said, thank you. For, I love the law. Not many times we say that. Thankfully, with the coming of Jesus, kingdom living is not only available to every single one of us, but the power to do so victoriously for those of us that follow Jesus, is right here. It's in us. The, because of the power, not because of our own good, because the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. That's how this works. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word once again. Thank you how it truly does pierce. It pierces us. Shows us our need for a Savior doesn't guilt us, doesn't shame us, but shows us our need for a Savior to give our lives and our hearts and minds completely over to you, God, so that we could be transformed and that the power of Jesus revolutionize desire to be kingdom liver. Especially in this area of anger, help us to truly allow you to transform our hearts and our minds and our actions. In your son's name we pray. Amen.